Welcome to Economic Frontiers. Uh, today, our guest is Marshall Van Alstein, who is a professor at Boston University, and he's an expert in platform economics. Uh, we're really excited to uh, interview him today. And uh, today, I have a new co-host, uh, Seth Benzel. Seth, uh, want to say hi? Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me, Andre. Um, and uh, we're really excited to start this conversation. Uh, so welcome to the show, Marshall. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's begin with maybe uh, uh, the, first, the, the first key question, which is, uh, is platform just a hype word, or what does it really mean? Uh, oh, definitely not a hype word. Definitely not a hype word. I, I usually like to start with a simple observation. If you classify those uh, firms by market value, simply by whether or not they have an ecosystem or not, Currently, something like six of the top ten firms are all platform firms. It includes Apple, uh, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and others. Do you want a definition? We can uh, yeah, make that simpler. I... So um, we like to think of platform firms as an open architecture, which allows third parties to attach to them. Uh, that's the, what the technologists usually get correct. But the other critical component is the governance model. You've got to motivate folks to join your ecosystem. So it's, a, it's the open architecture that allows others to attach to it, plus the rules of how you create and divide value and resolve conflict and join the ecosystem. Those are the things that we really look for. Uh, I, I see. So uh, one, one thing that Seth and I were talking about was uh, to maybe give you some examples to help us clarify what you mean by platform. So one thing that we can start with is like a traditional uh, retailer. So a retailer has buyers and then it has uh, various products that it sells to people. So does that constitute your definition of a platform? And yes, yes and why? So that's a good clear uh, uh, clarifying question. So one of the issues there is retailers take ownership of the merchandise that they sell. In some sense, they are vertically integrated with the products. Uh, that's not generally true of platforms. If you take a look at eBay or Alibaba as marketplaces, they tend not to own those resources. Uh, also, the, the more that the independent sellers get to set the terms of trade and the prices that they charge, the more you tend to move in the direction of a platform. But it is a continuum. It definitely is a continuum. For example, to the extent that Walmart allows third parties to stock its shelves and it's not responsible, well, then they're taking more of the responsibilities themselves and it's somewhere in between. Another example that we thought of is a company with a very popular IP that licenses out that IP to third party developers. So how would you think of uh, Disney's ownership of Star Wars? Would that be an example of a platform? Well, not yet. You don't, you don't have an open architecture where others are building on it. Now, you could convert it into a platform. Uh, matter of fact, we're starting to work with a company, Viacom, a uh, large uh, company that does entertainment. And they're starting to think of using the intellectual property and allowing others to remake content exactly as you would software subroutines. So you can think of you know, Linux as an operating system that's open or as a platform, others building on it. If you get Cartman handbags, for example, if you get uh, cartoons network content that you can appropriate and then move into new kinds of intellectual property, that's when you're starting to allow others to build upon what you have and take it in the direction of a platform. Licensing alone doesn't constitute it, but if you are um, having third parties enter your ecosystem, build upon your resources, and um, then redistribute, that's much more in the definition of a platform. And is it, is it necessary that this is like permission, permissionless entry? Like, is that a key component of being a platform that anyone can part, 
partake in it at, at the beginning? You just hit a critical idea. Matter of fact, it is fundamentally different than, for example, outsourcing. In the traditional models of inviting third parties in, you might contract with a third party in order to build something you specified at a negotiated price. The beauty of permissionless innovation is that people you don't know will bring you ideas you never had. It's this permissionless innovation that allows you to develop ideas or concepts out on that long tail of possibilities. And you get a very different form of ecosystems growth when you enable permissionless integration. Tie this back to the definition of a platform. We require you have a governance model. That again is the rules of participation, how you create value, how you divide, um, or how you resolve conflict. Under permissionless innovation, you've invited third parties to come in and help you out. But again, it's people that you don't know, and you have to set the rules in such a way that you reward them for coming and building on your platform, and you tell them how much they can keep by uh, investing and creating that value. So this might be a good segue to some of the papers that you've written about the considerations that companies have when they think about how they um, open up permissions to other people to use their platforms, other people to use their platforms, and how they decide what sort of third-party content eventually becomes bundled into the original platform. So can you talk about some of those considerations? Well, thanks for referencing some of the research. We have some. We have a couple of interesting new papers coming out. Uh, one on developers and how they invert where the value is created. You know, rather moving it from inside the firm to outside, and another from these open business models. Uh, how do you decide what's open and what's closed in there? Um, again, one of the helpful ways to think of it is to imagine the long tail diagram where you've sorted the forms of value on top of a platform from greatest to lowest. It's, uh, we can borrow an old idea from strategy that often it's helpful to incorporate those uh, value propositions that are at the head of the distribution or expressed differently, those goods with monopoly power on top of your platform are typically the ones that you would like to control. But there's another engineering concept that you want to uh, also own. Imagine that several different members of your ecosystem all invent the same subroutine that's essential for your ecosystem to function. So a simple example might be you don't want all of your different apps to have copy-paste. You should have that a fundamental part of the ecosystem and make it available to each of your ecosystem partners. Or voice control will be another one. You don't want to have to have each app independently develop voice control. These, Even though that may not be a monopoly function, you want to incorporate that because it's ubiquitous and others can then build upon it. That's what you will open that third parties can then incorporate and then create new forms of value. So what, rule number one might simply be own those resources with monopoly power. Another one is own those uh, functions at the lower level that enable third party but are somewhat ubiquitous. Even if you didn't originally create them, you'll want to absorb them. Yeah, one of the trade-offs you emphasize in your work is the idea that on the one hand, the benefit of being a platform is that you get these outside firms to do your work in innovation for you. But on the other hand, there's always this temptation to take what they've invented and just bring it right into your bundle. Um, so in what circumstances would you tend to give these contracting firms greater, we can call them pseudo patent rights, and when would you want to give them less? So that's a great question. To, to frame it slightly differently, one way to think about it is really a platform is running a miniature economy. And so what you're doing is you're designing an IP regime. 
by designing an IP regime, what you really want to think of it is what's the duration that you'll give folks uh, for when you aren't going to compete with them, and then at what point might you absorb their innovations into the platform. Uh, so a couple of different considerations is when you're getting started, often you want to offer greater exclusivity to your developer ecosystem partners in order that they invest. Another is the size of the uh, innovation pool. Uh, one of the things that we demonstrate in the paper or the research is that the larger the um, developer network, the greater the spillovers if I can build on your ideas and there are more developers like me, then you can have more of the spillovers you might want to appropriate sooner. Another competing property, however, is the um, competition among developers. So if you ratchet up the level of competition, then the rake, the amount that the platform itself can take from the transactions diminishes, and that also then can uh, depress the openness of the platform. So you wanna, you, you're gonna think of the, the two different kinds of policy in there. One is IP policy and also is the competition policy, and those can both affect the attributes of absorption and of your intellectual property rights. So that was kind of a very abstract description, but maybe you can tell us how that works in, within the context of two common uh, settings that we think of as platforms. Let's say one being uh, the video game industry. Let's suppose you have the Xbox and how do you choose uh, your policies with regards to the games? And then uh, secondly, a marketplace, so let's say Airbnb. So these, these seem very different to me. So. Do these principles apply to both equally, or how, how, how would that work? So um, let's unravel your questions from the back. So one, I want to distinguish between marketplaces, which we also consider platforms. That's not a general rule. But then also these innovation ecosystems where third parties are adding value on top. Now, it is interesting that the innovation ecosystems often are information goods that you can resell multiple times. Uh, so you have a high fixed cost, low marginal cost. In um, in contrast to the marketplaces, we might have a physical product and once you've transferred it, you can't sell it again, you're going to have to go make another one. Uh, or an Airbnb where you're going to have to rent it out uh, again. So it's a tangible good versus an intangible good distinction. But interestingly enough, it is a spectrum. Uh, and so each can become more like the other. As an example, Airbnb is now opening APIs and others that can, in order that others can take that data and do new things with it. And um, it's also the case that Airbnb is becoming more like a market, uh, starting, um, sorry, uh, more like a, uh, sorry, um, look, the other side. Um, the reseller, you mean? The, the rese yeah, the reseller. Uh, you're seeing new goods sold on top of the platforms, um, on top of the other ecosystems. So the other kinds of exchange, not just information goods, but more exchange as well as more innovation taking place uh, on both. Now, in terms of the gaming platforms, you'll see, um, toolkits as an example of the kinds of things that you're going to want to give away, then you're going to see uh, some of the best innovations appropriated into the platform over time. Uh, you, and first, you're enabling new game levels, you're enabling new characters uh, to be created on the platform. Um, uh, it's interesting, a really good um, example of this goodness, the name is Valve and Steam. They've created some remarkable marketplaces and tools where uh, different characters are innovated and they, they, you can now exchange them and you can download new mods and it's a wonderful example of this permissionless innovation taking place uh, within their ecosystem. So one of the, a platform is not only a place where innovation happens, but it's also a place where uh, end consumers meet up with uh, producers, and this happens in a two-sided market. Um, 
in a normal business, uh, we like to think of businesses optimizing by setting their price equal to their marginal costs. In a two-sided marketplace, what other considerations might a business face when they're deciding on their prices? So really what you're thinking of is matching complementary demand curves or complementary participation. And you may often subsidize one side of a multi-sided market in order to attract a different side of a multi-sided market. To use an example that you just given a moment ago, um, you know, the gaming industry has developers on one side and uh, users on, on the other side. And originally when Microsoft is giving these out, it gave the, um, uh, the consoles out. This is more like tying um, as one element of it, so you're going to sell the subsequent so, good. Just to clarify, they didn't give them out, they just uh, they uh, priced them cost. at below marginal cost. Cor correct, okay, <laughs> well, that's, I stand corrected on that. So they priced them somewhat below marginal cost, they weren't giving them away for free. Um, but, but they were giving out, uh, sorry, thinking the second component, are the um, access to the APIs, which they could have charged for, and the SDKs, the System Developer Toolkit. So those were being distributed for free. Um, now we have to distinguish between tying, which is the razors and blades model, and the or the cell phones and minutes mo um, uh, model. In those, it's usually the same party that's getting subsidized. So if you give up your cell phone contract, you're still going to have to pay for the remaining mi minutes on the contract. In contrast, on these two-sided or multi-sided models, one side may get subsidized indefinitely in order to attract a heterogeneous side. So you may be giving away the system developer toolkits indefinitely in order that you can charge more for the games to a different side. Or put differently, a wonderful intuition comes from um, nightclubs, which are matching markets. Ladies' night at nights, they discount to the women. Sorry, guys, they're never going to have a men's night where you discount to the men. It's the side that creates more value or the side, the stronger attractant that you subsidize. Uh, and that's one of the, the principal rules or differences between these multi-sided markets and a traditional product or mm -hmm. other service good. Uh, so um, there, there's actually like a very broad literature on these types of markets, I think initially motivated by the newspaper market. Uh, and what you're, where you're, one aspect of the pricing is exactly what you're saying, that there are these uh, cross-side complementarities. Uh, but another type of pricing consideration might be what is oftentimes called the Spence distortion, where uh, you might want to attract uh, people that are already not on your platform with a different set of policies that might be different than that, that which is best for the users that you already have. So uh, do you think that this is, in practicality, an important consideration? I think it's a genuinely interesting consideration and one I think actually needs to be examined again in the context of platforms. Go back to the observation that platforms are themselves mini economies. You want to really ask the question, to what extent does the platform sponsor, the owner, implement policies that are in the interests of the ecosystem versus the interests of um, users or you know, the sum of consumers plus producers. In this case, the platform sponsor represents a third profit-maximizing party, unlike a traditional social planner whose own profits aren't usually considered in the equation. And here they are. So you may get differences in what's optimal for the whole ecosystem relative to what's optimal for the planner. One of the things we found in our own research is that, in general, the platforms are better optimizers of transactions that occur on platform than um, traditional product business models. In contrast, but they're not as good as a social planner in general. So can you, can you give an example of that? 
So um, one of the things that we, in the intellectual property space, for example, one of the questions is when should you expire the property rights? It's interesting that a social planner would actually expire the property rights sooner in order to create the, um, the broadest possible spillover effects for the second round of innovation. A platform sponsor, in contrast, will expire those property rights later because they're participating in the revenue streams of the developers and so will extend that. So in that context, you've chosen a policy which is um, a little more in favor of the developers, in this case because they're also taxing developers and drawing their revenues from that developer side. So, uh, yeah, but just to clarify, you were also saying that the platform uh, kind of is closer to the optimum than a standard product firm. So I was, I was curious as what, what you meant by that. But, but it's not as far as a social planner. So you might think of it as being between a traditional product firm. So, oh, if, so if, you were, if you were a developer, mm -hmm. right, and you were, imagine that the developer is simply a downstream product in there, mm -hmm. right? The prices that you're going to charge are going to have more distortion overall because you're not accounting for the other sides as much. If you're a social planner, you'll be getting, obviously, the, the first best solution to the extent that that's mm -hmm. possible. And if you're a platform sponsor, because you are now taking account of the participation of multiple sides, you are closer toward the social planner. So that each of these different policies, again, your original question was inviting other parties in mm -hmm. to the extent that they may not be optimal for one group, the social plan, the the platform sponsor will want to account for the externalities among the different groups, and by internalizing those externalities, will tend to move closer to a social optimum than would one party that's accounting only for the welfare of a specific single party, i.e., for example, just developers or product pr producers without the consumers or the other sides. Uh, okay, so that, that makes sense to me. So one, one thing that is a natural question, though, is that uh, Typically, when uh, product-producing firms compete, they, they experience uh, a, lot of, a lot of other competitors. So, for example, uh, we can think about like food packaged good products. There are typically a lot of other uh, close substitutes that one can buy. Uh, on the other hand, we find that oftentimes platforms seem to be dominant in their industry. So, uh, so while kind of as a comparative static, uh, you may say that these firms uh, are closer to the optimal. At the same time, they also have more market power, which allows them to distort more. So how do you think about that? That's a wonderful question. Um, so let me unravel this one and f try to explain why they have so much market power. What I'd like to do is I like to draw an argument that we are now observing a change in industrial structure analogous to the change in industrial structure we saw 120 years ago with the Industrial Revolution. that Internet firms are like industrial firms, but in this case it's for the opposite reason. The original reason was supply-side economies of scale. So your cost of producing your first watt of electricity is extremely high and your second watt extremely low. Your cost of laying, uh, you're shipping your first railroad track, laying, uh, or ship, first railroad car, uh, getting right-of-ways and railroad track is extremely high and your second one very low. Now we're getting demand-side economies of scale. Network effects are also demand-side economies of scale. So we're getting a feedback where more users join a system, it gets more valuable, which makes it more, more users join, which makes it more valuable, which is causing this giant um, you know, agglomeration of firms. As I mentioned earlier, if you look at the most valuable firms in the world today, it starts 
with Apple and Google and Microsoft. And in the top 10 are included Facebook and Amazon, which, is, which are these platform firms driven by network effects. So return to your question. Why is it, so are they going to be optimal or are they going to be not optimal? Are they having market power? Are they, are they um, not exercising their, their control in the right way? One of the things that they do is they change the size of the market. Traditional economics tends to treat the demand curves as fixed. When you look at demand economies of scale, you're changing the demand profiles. You're causing more transactions to occur than otherwise would have occurred. To give you some empirical data on it, one interesting fact is that since the introduction of Uber in San Francisco, the size of the taxi market has tripled. And it's not the growth in the population, it's actually the changes in the demand profile. For example, their um, uh, demand pricing allows them to dynamically shrink and expand the size of the marketplace. The traditional economics doesn't account for the changes in the boundaries of the marketplace. Now, you typically will optimize the numbers. You, you want, when you do an optimization in this context, you want to cause new transactions to occur. You're dipping into those ones that the missing transactions in the marketplace. And you're trying to cause better transactions to occur given the ones that you had previously um, uh, engaged in. You, the platform firm will, in effect, try to do both and thereby expand the market. It is, however, the case that they will do it up to the margin where they're not getting uh, additional transactions that they're able to effectively distort. So they may, they will have market power. They will have undue market power. Um, they may be able to appropriate more of the rents drivers and Uber would have gotten than otherwise. They may be able to take a higher rate uh, in terms of the um, the tax you might uh, apply to a trade than otherwise. But they will try to pull in other transactions that would not have taken place, and they will have to um, uh, account for uh, the total market size, growing that market size. So that is a different, slightly different trade-off. So I, I'm just going to push back on that a little bit. Sure. Uh, I feel like Uber and uh, several of the other peer-to-peer -peer companies are not the paradigmatic example here because they essentially entered a, a really heavily regulated industry and kind of ignored, uh, let's say, the medallion laws in, in the city, and that allowed them to greatly expand the market. Uh, whereas, well, maybe it's, it's more informative to think about, um, let's say, Google's, Google as a platform, which is a really powerful platform. They account for the majority of search engines in most countries in the world. Uh, how do we think about their market power? So, so I accept the critique. Um, I think <clears throat> it is the case that a certain proportion of Uber's business is regulatory arbitrage, not market creation. So there might have been latent demand previously restricted by the demand. So, so I definitely accept that. But let's use your second example, Google, which perhaps is a stronger case. Google's market share in mobile is 91% even though there is zero switching cost. It's trivial for you to switch over to Bing. Why is that the case at the moment? One of the things that we argue is that their network effects are so good, it's a data-driven network effect, or it's an implicit network effect. It is this service becoming more valuable as it becomes used, or users attracting or creating value for users. In this case, it's implicit, where your Google search makes my Google search better. And that 
Google search makes Seth's Google search better. People, the variety of transactions that are taking place on Google makes their advertising model more effective, which attracts more advertisers. Users are getting the ads they want, not the ones they don't want, which makes users happier. The feedback in this mechanism expands the marketplace. Uh, so this, <clears throat> uh, talking about expanding the marketplace, presumably consumers who are being drawn into a marketplace were competing, were in a market somewhere else, so they were enjoying leisure. Is that a benefit that's not being taken into account when we talk about the benefits of expanding the marketplace or the specific market we're talking about that's growing? I think that's a great PhD research question. Um, I actually think that that is an under... When you move the boundaries of markets, when you change or modify prefer preferences, um, your, your traditional welfare models don't really apply nearly as well. And I think uh, a, a deeper way to think about exactly those problems is exactly warranted. This is what you should be doing with radio broadcasts, <laughs> you know, inviting more people to go after those very questions. Uh, you'll be shifting preferences and shifting behaviors uh, in many of these cases. It's fascinating. If you look at what they do in order to motivate you to do things, they will press a lot of biological buttons in this case. Um, there is a, uh, there's a wonderful book on, uh, called Hooked, I believe, that talks about the techniques used to provide a reward to then get you to engage in a behavior which then deepens your involvement with a particular platform. Now, it, it may in the moment make you happier, but may make you in the long term, worse off, make you more exploitable. You're creating resources on behalf of others that are used for their welfare, not for yours. This, I think, is a wonderful research question, and I invite you to go after it. Okay. Uh, another uh, question, just following up on the previous thread of market power. One of the observations that we can make is that because one side is subsidized, and it's oftentimes the consumer side, it seems like market power is not being exercised but there may be market power exercised on the other side of the market. So, for example, Google might be extracting a lot of value from sellers on the advertising market because they're, uh, they're effectively one of the two most powerful online uh, advertising platforms. So do you think that this is a concern? Uh, I do, actually. Matter of fact, there's another nice literature on competitive bottlenecks. Um, that's true. So if there's, if there's a great deal of openness on one side of the market and less openness on the other side, it's much easier to exploit that side where there's, there's less competition. So um, I think that you have identified a real problem in that case, and it, it is likely that we might need some kinds of interventions to restore uh, you know, greater competitiveness in such marketplaces. A crude rule of thumb uh, is if the market failures are occurring on platform, they'll typically self-regulate because the um, b because if market failures are occurring on platform, then it may drive one of the sides away, which then causes the market to unravel. If the market uh, um, if the market failures are occurring off platform, then you know we're, we're depressing competition outside the market. Then uh, then you may need regulatory intervention. So, so just to clarify, I, I think market failure and market power are different things, right? Because yes. uh, market failure, I would think of might be something like a coordination problem or uh, externalities, but market power just means that uh, 
the firm with the market power will be able to raise prices and therefore will get an inefficient amount of production. So when I think about Google's ad platform, uh, and I don't know if this is true, I'm just saying it's a possibility, that uh, if their ads are priced in a way that, in a manner that's, that's extractive, uh, then uh, that's, that's not something I would consider necessarily a market failure, but an exercise of market power, and the consequences are gonna be borne by everyone else, either having to uh, charge higher prices and, but on the seller part and producing less, and then on the consumer part, uh, having to face higher prices. So that's completely true. But well, the thing that you want to, again, go back to the other observation, it's not just movements up and down the demand curve. One of the fascinating differences in these marketplaces is by depressing the participation of one group, you then depress the participation of another group. So the market pricing failures lead to other kinds of transactional failures in the shrinkage of the market. So it's not just the pricing power, it's also the shrinkage in the size of the market uh, and the reduction in other kinds of transactions that will subsequently take place. So it's not, it, it, it's not just deadweight loss that you're, that you're looking at when you, um, uh, you are correct in identifying the two different um, differences between market failure versus market power, but in this case, changes in prices change the size of the market. Yeah, that's that's a po- I, I did have that in mind as well. I agree with you 100 percent about about that. Um, I guess uh, a follow up question: you you mentioned that something might be done about it. Do do you think that antitrust laws should be changed to take into account platforms, or what do you think about recent attempts to let's say regulate Google or a- Amazon in, in Europe? So uh, the traditional antitrust law has a couple of different failures that don't apply as well in the demand side economies of scale markets. One of the first and most obvious ones is the, um, the test of marginal cost pricing. So for example, um, it makes perfect sense even in the absence of competition in a two or multi-sided market to, to price at or below marginal cost indefinitely. That's a profit maximizing thing to do. Whereas in traditional antitrust economics, it looks like you're doing competitive dumping or penetration pricing in some way in order that you can capture surplus in some future period. That's a good example of where things break down. Um, another is um, the uh, simple emphasis on uh, fixed cost infrastructure. Here, uh, some of the remedies of breakup are a little bit harder to uh, apply, and then you get lots of access to the infrastructure that takes place. Here, the infrastructure is all uh, information or digital, so it's harder to simply break up firms as a remedy. You would lose the network effects mm-hmm. if they, um, they can't participate across uh, the different portions of the ecosystem. Um, so the, the antitrust laws, um, will need to be adapted just a bit to handle some of the uh, the externalities and the changes in market size. So are you thinking specifically maybe uh, forcing companies to open up APIs or kind, kind of allow for, let's say, other companies to make use of like the social graph or some, some, some this type of regulation? This would be a good example of applying the intellectual property law back to the platform itself. So the investments in data, the investments in the infrastructure that others create might, after a period, expire and allow third parties to have access. That's precisely the kind of thing that will probably need to take place, um, but it's now in the digital realm and not just the physical realm. 
would it make sense at all to run these as just government businesses uh, if we think the social planner can get the best outcome and there seem to be clear ways they could improve on either a competitive or a monopolist? This is a case where I think the profit motive is actually valuable. The companies trying to expand their ecosystems and, and make money actually are likely to be very good shepherds of their ecosystems overall, subject to some regulatory scrutiny. As an example, it makes sense for the platform to watch the development of new uh, apps or features emerge on top of the platform and try to decide when it's optimal to absorb those in order to increase profits for itself and for the ecosystem as a whole. The social planner or the governments tend not to be, they tend to be much stiffer. They tend to not, without the profit motive, they tend to be much more delayed in, um, uh, in absorbing those features or watching for the change. Uh, I think that the uh, profit maximizing firms are more aggressive in making things happen and causing innovation to happen at a higher pace. Uh, fair enough, but we think that things like uh, electricity, basic infrastructure, or natural monopolies um, it makes sense for one company to just do them once, um, and yet, if it was a private business, we would be concerned that they would have too much market power, you get all these negative outcomes. So how important is innovation that happens on the platform when we've just talked about how so much of the innovation can happen by third parties? That's a great question. I think the answer there depends on the extent to which the standard itself is evolving. So if you're looking at electricity, if you're looking at roads, if you're looking at the metric system, that's not evolving. If you're looking at an operating system, in contrast, or a gaming system, those evolve quickly, in which case you need to have a high, greater emphasis on the innovation portion of it, and the, the tuning, the control, may need to be adapted to a specific set of comparative statics for an industry. The comparative statics for software will be different than the comparative statics for um, music or for 3D printing, in which case the social planner for the platform may be better than the social planner for the economy, and a set of congressional laws that you would have set for an entire economy won't have the comparative statics right on each ecosystem. Um, so I just want to move on to a final topic before we wrap up, um, which is, uh, let's say your company. Uh, in what case does it make sense to quote-unquote pursue a platform strategy? Is this something that is apparent ex-ante as you become successful or is this something that is a risky decision that may or may not pay off and, and kind of if, if so, uh, when, when should you make it? Both are correct. Both are correct. If you don't have the resources to become a platform, it can be an extremely expensive loss or um, investment. These, for exactly the reasons analogous to the industrial era change, the you know the rise of the supply side economies of scale and the demand side economies of scale, these markets tend to concentrate. They tend to be just a few firms at the top, and so you get the natural racing behavior where multiple parties might invest, but only a few are likely to win. Um, and so you have an interesting question whether or not you feel you're actually likely to win. Um, if you succeed, payoffs can be huge. If you succeed, the payoffs can be huge. Um, you, know, you, you become the Apple or the Google or the Amazon. Um, uh, but uh, if you don't succeed, then you go out of business. Or, may, or if you're lucky, you get absorbed. Um, we, and it's bruising. 
You, you know, for example, that Uber just got beaten by Didi in China and have effectively had to withdraw. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a tough business. A predictor of whether a business will transform is part um, is the proportion of value created by information goods. The higher the proportion of value, the easier it is for such a business to transform. That's one of the reasons we might see these industries transforming first in telecommunications, in software, in gaming, uh, in video. Those are the industries that have a high proportion of information value. Uh, another one that's kind of an interesting predictor that's often underappreciated is the extent of spare capacity and where you can create marketplaces in spare capacity. You drive a car, what, two hours a day max? Your guest bedroom has been occupied two hours, I mean, two weeks out of a 52-week year. Yeah, that's one-twelfth or one, you know, uh, one-twenty-sixth in there. It's really terrible. You expect to create markets in that. I know there are firms here in Boston creating, uh, trying to become Airbnb of MRI machines. If it's a 40% utilization rate and you can increase the utilization rate to 80%, you've got a great possible business. Creating markets in those kinds of transactions is another predictor uh, that this is likely to transform. Oh, okay. Um, so just one final question. Let's say you're the M MRI machine producer. Why wouldn't you become the platform? Like, like what is the, is it something that an external entrepreneur comes into it or is it the firm that's already producing it that should be doing it? That's, I can tell you some wonderful stories on that. And actually the leading, the, the insightful firms should seek to become the platform. And this is where the governance comes in, where you want to invite competitors even into your own ecosystem. Give you two interesting conflicting examples. In one case, we started to work with uh, one of the largest manufacturers of tractors in India. They have now offered a system they call Tringo, where they're trying to become the Uber of tractors. Makes perfect sense. A farmer uses their tractor, what? Wants to plow the fields and wants to harvest. So it's a very underutilized asset. They're opening it up in such a way that even competitors can offer their tractors through the service. Makes perfect sense. The beauty is they're also going to get the data on when their tractors fail relative to when competitors' tractors fail. They can improve their designs and guess what? The competitors won't have the data. In contrast, interestingly enough, a manufacturer of MRI machines, Siemens, has opposed the uh, creation of such marketplaces on the presumption that they will sell less equipment. Well, of course that's true. But if someone else gets there first and then starts to create that platform and it becomes a winner-take-all marketplace, then you're in a very dangerous and precarious position. We can also use this to forecast what's likely to happen in the automotive industry. As we get more and more platform usage, as the utilization rate of vehicles goes up, there's a natural need for fewer vehicles to be produced. There are, we can predict that some of these car companies are going to have to merge or go out of business as we get to self-driving cars and we get more fleet management of companies like Uber. Now, in that case, you can either become something like Uber and lead the charge, or you can be left behind. It's a choice that you're going to have to make. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm sure we could talk more, but uh, you have to go. Uh, Marshall, thank you so much for coming on our platform. It's a pleasure, and thanks for having me.